The Dark is Rising by Susan Cooper. This is the second half of the chapter called Christmas Day, which is the fourth chapter in part two. Very complicated. It was Will's first intimation that he could do anything another old one could not, but there was no time for wonder. With the gift of grammarie, he closed off the minds of his brother and the rector behind a barrier that no power of any kind could break through. It was a perilous undertaking, since he, the maker, was the only one who could remove the barrier, and if anything were to happen to him, the two protected ones would be left like vegetables, incapable of any communication forever. But the risk had to be taken. There was nothing else to be done. Their eyes closed gently as if they had gone quietly to sleep. They stood very still. After a moment their eyes opened again, but were tranquil and empty, unaware. "'All right,' said Farmer Dawson. "'Now!' The old ones stood in the doorway of the church, their arms linked together. None spoke a word to another. Wild noise and turbulence rose outside. The light darkened, the wind howled and whined, the snow whirled in and whipped their faces with white chips of ice. And suddenly the rooks were in the snow, hundreds of them, black flurries of malevolence, cawing and croaking, diving down at the porch in shrieking attack, and then swooping up away. They could not come close enough to claw and tear. It was as if an invisible wall made them fall back within inches of their targets. But that would be only for as long as the old one's strength could hold. In a wild storm of black and white the dark attacked, beating at their minds as at their bodies, and above all driving hard at the sign-seeker, Will. And Will knew that if he had been on his own, his mind, for all its gifts of protection, would have collapsed. It was the strength of the circle of old ones that held him fast now. But for the second time in his life, even the circle could do no more than hold the power of the dark at bay. Even together the old ones could not drive it back, and there was no lady now to bring aid of a greater kind. Will realized once more, helplessly, that to be an old one was to be very old before the proper time, for the fear he began to feel now was worse than the blind terror he had known in his attic bed, worse than the fear the dark had put into him in the great hall. This time his fear was adult, made of experience and imagination and care for others, and it was the worst of all. In the moment that he knew this, he knew too that he, Will, was the only means by which his own fear could be overcome, and thus the circle fortified and the dark driven away. "'Who are you?' he asked himself, and answered, "'You are the sign-seeker. You have three of the signs, half the circle of things of power. Use them.' The sweat was standing on his own forehead now, as it had done on the rector's, though now the rector and Paul stood in smiling peace, oblivious, outside, of every, outside everything that was going on. Will could see the strain on the faces of the others, Farmer Dawson most of all. Slowly he moved his hands inwards, bringing the hands each held closer to one another. John Smith's left hand nearer to Farmer Dawson's right, and when they were close enough he joined his neighbor's hands, shutting himself out. For a panicking moment he clutched them again as if he were tightening a knot. Then he let go and stood alone. Unprotected now by the circle, though sheltered behind it, he swayed under the impact of the raging ill-will outside the church. Then, moving very deliberately, he unclasped his belt with its three precious burdens and draped it over his arm, took from his pocket the rook's feather and wove it into the center sign, the bronze-quartered circle. 
Then he took the belt in both his hands, holding it up before him, and moved slowly round until he stood alone in the church porch, facing the howling, rook-screaming, icy dark beyond. He had never felt so lonely before. He did nothing. He thought nothing. He stood there, and let the signs work for themselves. And suddenly there was silence. The flapping birds were gone. No wind howled. The dreadful, mad humming that had filled the air and the mind was vanished altogether. Every nerve and muscle in Will's body went limp as the tension disappeared. Outside the snow still fell quietly, but the flakes were smaller now. The old ones looked at one another and laughed. "'The full circle will do the real job,' said old George. "'But half a circle can do a lot, eh, young Will?' <coughs> Will looked down at the signs in his hand and shook his head in wonder. Farmer Dawson said softly, "'In all my days since the grail disappeared, "'that's the first time I've seen anything "'but the mind of one of the great ones drive back the dark. "'Things this time. "'They did it alone, for all our willing. "'We have things of power again. "'It has been a long, long time.' "'Will was still looking at the signs, "'staring as if they held his eyes for some purpose. "'Wait,' he said abstractedly. "'Don't move. "'Stay still for a moment.' "'They paused, startled.' The smith said, "'Is there trouble?' "'Look at the signs,' Will said. "'Something's happening to them. "'They're... they're glowing.' He turned slowly, still holding the belt with the three signs as before, until his body was blocked... Oops, Until his body was blocking the grey light from the door, and his hands were in the gloom of the church, and the signs grew brighter and brighter, each of them glowing with a strange inward light. The old ones stared... "'Is it the power of driving back the dark?' said John Smith's wife in her soft lilt. "'Is it something in them that was sleeping and begins to wake now?' Will was trying vainly to sense what the signs were telling him. "'I think it's a message. It means something, but I can't get through.' The light poured out of the three signs, filling their half of the dark little church with brilliance. It was a light like sunlight, warm and strong.' Nervously, Will reached out a finger to touch the nearest circle, the sign of iron, but it was neither hot nor cold. Farmer Dawson said suddenly, "'Look up there!' His arm was out, pointing up the nave towards the altar. In the instant they turned, they saw what he had seen, another light blazing from the wall, just as beside them the light blazed from the signs. It shone out like the beam from a great torch. And Will understood. He said happily, "'So that's why.' "'He walked up towards the second patch of brilliance, "'carrying the belt and the signs, "'so that the shadows on the pews "'and on the beams of the roof "'moved with him as he went. "'As the two lights grew closer and closer together, "'each seemed to grow brighter still. "'With Frank Dawson's tall, heavy form "'looming behind him, "'Will paused in the middle of the shaft of brilliance "'reaching out from the wall. "'It looked as if a slit window "'were letting light through some unimaginably "'bright room beyond.' He saw that the light was coming from something very small, as long as one of his fingers lying on its side. He said with certainty to Mr. Dawson, "'I must take it quickly, you know, while the light still shines from it. If the light is not shining, it can't be found at all.' <sighs> and putting the belt with the sign of iron and the sign of bronze and the sign of wood into Frank Dawson's hands, 
he went forward to the light-cleft wall and reached in to the small source of the enchanted beam. The glowing thing came out of the wall easily from a break in the stucco where the chiltern flints of the wall showed through. It lay on his palm, a circle, quartered by a cross. It had not been cut into that shape. Even through the light in it Will could see the smooth roundness of the sides that told him this was natural flint grown in the chiltern chalk fifteen million years ago. "'The sign of stone,' Farmer Dawson said. His voice was gentle and reverent, his dark eyes unreadable. "'We have the fourth sign, Will.' Together they walked back to join the others, carrying the bright things of power. The three old ones watched in silence. Paul and the rector now sat tranquil in a pew as if sleeping. <clears throat> Will stood with his fellows and took the belt and threaded on the sign of stone to stand there next to the other three. He had to squint through half-closed eyes to keep the brightness from blinding him. Then, when the fourth sign was in position next to the rest, all the light in them died. <clears throat> they were dark and quiet as they had been before, and the sign of stone showed itself as a smooth and beautiful thing with the grey-white surface of an undamaged flint. The black rook's feather was still woven into the sign of bronze. Will took it out. He did not need it now. <clears throat> when the light went out of the signs, Paul and the rector stirred. They opened their eyes, startled to find themselves sitting in a pew when a moment ago, it seemed to them, they had been standing. Paul jumped up instinctively, his head turning, questing. "'It's gone,' he said. He looked at Will, and a peculiar expression of puzzlement and wonder and awe came over his face. His eyes travelled down to the belt in Will's hand. In Will's hands. "'What happened?' he said." <clears throat> the rector stood up, his smooth, plump face creased in an effort to make sense of the incomprehensible. "'Certainly it has gone,' he said, looking slowly round the church. "'Whatever influence it was, the Lord be praised!' <clears throat> he too looked at the signs on Will's belt, and he glanced up again, smiling suddenly, an almost childish smile of relief and delight. "'That did the work, didn't it? The cross, not of the church, but a Christian cross never nonetheless.' "'Very old, them crosses are, Rector,' said old George unexpectedly, firm and clear. "'Made a long time before Christianity, long before Christ.' The rector beamed at him. "'But not before God,' he said simply. The old ones looked at him. There was no answer that would not have offended him. So no one tried to give one, except after a moment will. "'There's not really any before and after, is there?' he said. Everything that matters is outside time, and comes from there, and can go there. <clears throat> Mr. Beaumont turned to him in surprise. You mean infinity, of course, my boy. Not altogether, said the old one that was Will. I mean the part of all of us, and of all the things we think and believe, that has nothing to do with yesterday, or today, or tomorrow, because it belongs at a different kind of level. "'Yesterday is still there on that level. "'Tomorrow is there, too. "'You can visit either of them. "'And all gods are there, and all the things they have ever stood for, "'and,' he added sadly, "'the opposite, too.' <clears throat> "'Will,' said the rector, staring at him, "'I am not sure whether you should be exorcised or ordained. "'You and I must have some long talks very soon.' "'Yes, we must,' Will said equably. 
he buckled on his belt, heavy with its precious burden. He was thinking hard and quickly as he did so, and the chief image before his mind was not Mr. Beaumont's disturbed theological assumptions, but Paul's face. <clears throat> he had seen his brother looking at him with a kind of fearful remoteness that bit into him with the pain of a whiplash. It was more than he could stand. His two worlds must not meet so closely. He raised his head, gathering all his powers, <clears throat> spread straight the fingers of both his hands, and pointed one hand at each of them. "'You will forget,' he said softly in the old speech. "'Forget. Forget.' "'In a church in Edinburgh once, marvellous,' the rector said to Paul, reaching to do up the top button of his overcoat. "'The Sarabond in the fifth suite literally had me in tears. He's the greatest cellist in the world, without a doubt.' "'Oh, yes,' said Paul. "'Oh, yes, he is.' He hunched his shoulders inside his own coat. "'Has Mum gone ahead, Will? "'Hey, Mr. Dawson, hello, happy Christmas.' And he beamed and nodded at the rest, as they all turned towards the church porch and the scattered flakes of drifting snow. "'Happy Christmas, Paul, Mr. Beaumont,' said Farmer Dawson gravely. "'A nice service, sir, very nice.' "'Ah, seasonal warmth, Frank,' said the rector. "'A wonderful season, too. "'Nothing can interfere with our Christmas services, "'not even all this snow.' <clears throat> "'Laughing and chatting, they went out into the white world, "'where the snow lay mounded over the invisible tombstones "'and the white fields stretching down to the freezing Thames. "'There was no sound anywhere, no disturbance, "'only the occasional murmur of a car passing on the distant Bath Road.' The rector turned aside to find his motorbike. The rest of them went on, in a cheerful straggle, to take their respective paths home. Two black rooks were perched on the lich-gate as Will and Paul drew close. They rose into the air slowly, half-hopping, dark incongruous shapes against the white snow. One of them passed close to Will's feet and dropped something there, giving a deprecation deprecatory croak as he passed. Will picked it up. It was a glossy horse-chestnut from the rook's wood, as fresh as if it had ripened only yesterday. He and James always collected such nuts from the wood in early autumn for their school games of conkers, but he had never seen one as large and round as this. "'There now,' said Paul, amused. "'You have a friend, bringing you an extra Christmas present.' "'A peace-offering, perhaps,' said Frank Dawson behind them, with no trace of expression in his deep Buckinghamshire voice. "'And then again, perhaps not. Happy Christmas, lads. Enjoy your dinner.' And the old ones were gone up the road. Will picked up the conquer. "'Well, I never,' he said. They closed the church gate, knocking a shower of snow from its flat-iron bars. Round the corner came the coughing roars of a motorcycle as the rector tried to kick his steed into life. Then a few feet ahead of them on the trampled snow the rook flew down again. It walked backwards and forwards irresolutely and looked at Will. "'Kark!' it said, very gently for a rook. "'Kark! Kark! Kark!' Then it walked a few paces forward to the churchyard fence, jumped down again into the churchyard, and walked back a few paces as before." The invitation could hardly have been more obvious. "'Kark!' said the rook again, louder. The ears of an old one know that birds do not speak with the precision of words. Instead, they communicate emotion. There are many kinds and degrees of emotion, and there are many kinds of expression, even in the language of a bird. 
but although Will could tell that the rook was obviously asking him to come and look at something, he could not tell whether or not the bird was being used by the dark. He paused, thinking of what the rooks had done. Then he fingered the shiny brown chestnut in his hand. "'All right, bird,' he said. "'One quick look.' <clears throat> he went back through the gate, and the rook, croaking like an old swinging door, walked clumsily ahead of him up the church path and round the corner. Paul watched, grinning. Then he saw Will suddenly stiffen as he reached the corner, vanish for a moment, and then reappear. "'Paul, come quick! There's a man in the snow!' Paul called the rector, who had just begun pushing his cycle up the road to start it there, and together they came running. Will was bending over a hunched figure, lying in the angle between the church wall and the tower. There was no movement, and the snow had already covered the man's clothes half an inch thick with its cold, feathery flakes. <clears throat> Mr. Beaumont moved Will gently aside and knelt, turning the man's head and feeling for a pulse. "'He's alive, thank God, but very cold. "'The pulse isn't very good. "'He must have been here long enough for most men to die of exposure. "'Look at the snow. Let's get him inside.' "'In the church?' "'Well, of course.' "'Let's take him to our house,' Paul said impulsively. "'It's only just round the corner, after all. "'It's warm, and a lot better, at any rate, "'until an ambulance or something can come.' "'A wonderful idea,' said Mr. Beaumont warmly. "'Your good mother is a Samaritan, I know.' "'Just wait until—just uh, until Dr. Armstrong can be called. "'We certainly can't leave the poor fellow here. "'I don't think there's a broken bone. "'Heart trouble, probably.' "'He tucked his heavy cycle gloves under the man's head "'to keep it from the snow, "'and Will saw the face for the first time. "'He said in alarm, "'It's the walker.' "'They turned to him. "'Who?' "'An old tramp who hangs around. "'Paul—' "'We can't take him home. Can't we get him to Dr. Armstrong's surgery?' "'In this?' Paul waved a hand at the darkening sky. The snow was whirling around them, thicker again, and the wind was higher. "'But we can't take him with us, not the walker. He'll bring back the—' He stopped suddenly, halfway through a yelp. "'Oh,' he said helplessly, "'of course, you can't remember, can you?' "'Don't worry, Will. Your mother won't mind. A poor man, in extremis.' Mr. Beaumont was bustling now. He and Paul carried the walker to the gate, like a he muffled heap of ancient clothes. He managed finally to start the motorcycle, and they propped the inert shape on it somehow. Then, half riding, half pushing, the strange little group made its way to the Stanton's house. Will glanced behind him once or twice, but the rook was nowhere to be seen. "'Well, well,' said Max, fastidiously, as he came down into the dining-room. "'Now I've really met a dirty old man.' "'He smelled,' Barbara said. "'You're telling me. Dad and I gave him a bath. My Lord, you should have seen him. Well, no, you shouldn't. Put you off your Christmas dinner. Anyway, he's as clean as a newborn babe now. Dad even washed his hair and his beard, and Mum's burning his horrible old clothes when she's made sure there's nothing valuable in them.' "'Not much danger of that, I should think,' said Gwen, on her way in from the kitchen.' "'Here, move your arm. This dish is hot.' <clears throat> "'We should lock up all the silver,' said James. "'What silver?' said Mary, witheringly. "'Well, Mum's jewellery, then, and the Christmas presents. Tramps always steal things.' "'This one won't be stealing much for a time,' said Mr. Stanton, coming to his place at the head of the table with a bottle of wine and a corkscrew. "'He's ill, and fast asleep now, snoring like a camel.' "'Have you ever heard a camel snore?' asked Mary. 
"'Yes,' said her father, "'and ridden one, so there. "'When's the doctor coming, Max? "'Pity to interrupt his dinner, poor man.' "'We didn't,' said Max. "'He's out delivering a baby, "'and they don't know when he'll be back. "'The woman was expecting twins.' "'Oh, Lord!' "'Well, the old boy must be all right if he's asleep. "'Just needs rest, I expect, "'though I must say he seemed a bit delirious, "'all that weird talk coming out.' "'Gwen and Barbara brought in more dishes of vegetables. "'In the kitchen their mother was making impressive clattering noises with the oven. "'What weird talk?' said Will. "'Goodness knows,' said Robin. "'It was when we first took him up. "'Sounded like a language unknown to human ear. "'Maybe he comes from Mars.' "'I only wish he did,' Will said. "'Then we could send him back.' "'But a shout of approval had greeted his mother, "'beaming over the glossy brown turkey, "'and nobody heard him. "'They turned on the radio in the kitchen "'while they were doing the washing up. "'Heavy snow is falling again "'over the south and west of England,' "'said the impersonal voice. "'The blizzard, which has been raging for twelve hours in the North Sea, "'is still immobilizing all shipping on the southeast coasts.' The London docks closed down this morning due to power failures and transport difficulties caused by heavy snow and temperatures approaching zero. Snowdrifts blocking roads have isolated villages in many remote areas, and British Rail is fighting numerous electrical failures and minor derailments caused by the snow. A spokesman said this morning that the public is advised not to travel by rail, except in cases of emergency. There was a sound of rustling paper. The voice went on. The freak storms which have intermittently raged over the south of England for the last few days are not expected to diminish until after the Christmas holiday, the meteorological office said this morning. Fuel shortages have worsened in the southeast, and householders have been asked not to use any form of electrical heating between the hours of 9 a.m. and midday, or, six and, or 3 and 6 p.m. Poor old Max, Gwen said. No trains. Perhaps he can hitchhike. Listen, listen. A spokesman for the Automobile Association said today that road travel was at present extremely inadvisable on all roads except major motorways. He added that motorists stranded in heavy snowstorms should, if possible, remain with their vehicles until the snow stops. Unless a driver is quite certain of his location and knows he can reach help within ten minutes, the spokesman said, he should on no account leave his car. The voice went on, among exclamations and whistles, but Will turned away. He had heard enough. These storms could not be broken by the old ones without the power of the full circle of signs, and by sending the storms the dark hoped to stop him from completing the circle. He was trapped. The dark was spreading its shadow not only over his quest, but over the ordinary world, too. From the moment the rider had invaded his cosy Christmas that morning, Will had watched the dangers grow, but he had not anticipated this wider threat. For days now he had been too much caught up in his own perils to notice those of the outside world, but so many people were threatened now by the snow and the cold, the very young, the very old, the weak, the ill. The walker won't have a doctor tonight, that's certain, he thought. It's a good job he isn't dying. The walker. Why was he here? There had to be some meaning behind it. Perhaps he had simply been hovering for his own reasons, and been blasted by the attack of the dark on the church. But if so, why had the rook, an agent of the dark, brought Will to save him from freezing to death? Who was the walker, anyway? Why could all the powers of Grammarie tell him nothing about the old man at all? 
There were carols on the radio again, Will, Will thought bitterly. Happy Christmas, world. His father, passing, slapped him on the back. Cheer up, Will. It's bound to stop tonight. You'll be tobogganing tomorrow. Come on, time to open the rest of the presents. If we keep Mary waiting any longer, she'll explode. Will went to join his cheerful, noisy family. Back in the cozy, brilliant cave of the long room, with the fire and the glowing tree, it was untouched Christmas for a while, just as it had always been. And his mother and father and Max had joined to give him a new bicycle with racing handlebars and eleven gear speeds. Will was never quite sure whether what happened that night was a dream. In the darkest part of the night, the small, chill hours that are the first of the next day, he woke, and Merriman was there. He stood towering beside the bed in a faint light that seemed to come from within his own form. His face was shadowed, inscrutable. "'Wake up, Will, wake up. There is a ceremony we must attend.' In an instant Will was standing. He found that he was fully dressed, with the signs on their belt round his waist. He went with Merriman to the window. It was mounded to half its height with snow, and still the flakes were quietly falling. He said, suddenly desolate, "'Isn't there anything we can do to stop it? They're freezing half the country, Merriman. People will be dying.' Merriman shook his white-maned head slowly, heavily. "'The dark has its strongest power of all rising between now and the twelfth day. This is their preparing. Theirs is a cold strength. The winter feeds it. They mean to break the circle forever before it is too late for them. We shall all face a hard test soon, but not all things go according to their will.' Much magic still flows untapped along the old one's ways, and we might and we may find more hope in a moment. Come. The window ahead of them flew open outwards, scattering all the snow. A faint, luminous path, like a broad ribbon, lay ahead, stretching into the snow flecked air. Looking down, Will could see through it, see the snow-mounded outlines of roofs and fences and trees below, yet the path was substantial too. In one stride Merriman had reached it through the window, and was sweeping away at great speed with an eerie gliding movement, vanishing into the night. Will leapt after him, and the strange path swept him too off through the night, with no feeling either of speed or cold. The night around him was black and thick. Nothing was to be seen except the glimmer of the old one's airy way. And then all at once they were in some bubble of time, hovering, tilted on the wind, as Will had learned from his eagle of the Book of Grammarie. Watch, Merriman said, and his cloak swirled round Will as if in protection. Will saw in the dark sky, or in his own mind, a group of great trees, leafless, towering over a leafless hedge, wintry but without snow. He heard a strange thin music, a high piping accompaniment, a high piping accompanied by the small constant thump of a drum, playing over and over again a single melancholy tune. And out of the deep dark and into the ghostly grove of trees a procession came. It was a procession of boys, in clothes of some time long past, tunics and rough leggings. They had hair to their shoulders and bag-like caps of a shape he had never seen before. They were older than he, about fifteen, he guessed, they had the half-solemn expressions of players in a game of charades, mingling earnest purpose with a bubbling sense of fun. At the front came boys with sticks and bundles of birch twigs. At the back were the players of pipe and drum. 
Between these, six boys carried a kind of platform made of reeds and branches woven together, with a bunch of holly at each corner. It was like a stretcher, Will thought, except that they were holding it at shoulder height. He thought at first that it was no more than that, and empty, when he saw that it supported something. Something very small. On a cushion of ivy leaves in the centre of the woven beer lay the body of a minute bird, a dusty brown bird, neat billed. It was a wren. Merriman's voice said softly over his head out of the darkness, It is the hunting of the wren, performed every year since men can remember at the solstice. But this is a particular year, and we may see more if all is well. Hope in your heart, Will, that we may see more. And as the boys and their sad music moved on through the sky-trees, and yet did not seem to pass, Will saw, with a catch in his breath, that instead of the little bird, there was growing the dim shape of a different form on the bier. Merriman's hand clutched at his shoulder like a steel clamp, though the big man made no sound. Lying on the bed of ivy between the four holly-tufts now was no longer a tiny bird, but a small, fine-boned woman, very old, delicate as a bird, robed in blue. The hands were folded on the chest, and on one finger glimmered a ring with a huge rose-colored stone. In the same instant Will saw the face, and knew that it was the lady. He cried out in pain, "'But you said she wasn't dead!' "'No more she is,' Merriman said. The boys walked to their music. The bier with the silent form lying there came close, and then moved away, vanishing with the procession into the night, and the piping sad tune and the drum-beats dwindled after it. But on the very edge of disappearance the three boys who had been playing paused, put down their instruments, and turned to stand gazing without expression at will. One of them said, "'Will Stanton, beware the snow.' The second said, "'The lady will return, but the dark is rising.' The third, in a quick sing-song tone, chanted something that Will recognized as soon as it began. "'When the dark comes rising, six shall turn it back, three from the circle, three from the track, wood, bronze, iron, water, fire, stone, five will return, and one go alone.' But the boy did not end there, as Merriman had done. He went on. "'Iron for the birthday, bronze carried long,' Wood from the burning, stone out of song, Fire in the candle-ring, water from the thaw, Six signs the circle, and the grail gone before. Then a great wind came up out of nowhere, And in a flurry of snowflakes and darkness The boys were gone, whirled away, And Will, too, felt himself whirling backwards, Back through time, back along the shining way of the old ones. The snow lashed at his face, The night was in his eyes, stinging, out of the darkness he heard Merriman calling to him urgently, but with a new hope and resonance in his deep voice. "'Danger rises with the snow, Will. Be wary of the snow. Follow the signs. Beware the snow.' And Will was back in his room, back in his bed, falling into sleep with the one ominous word ringing in his head like the chiming of the deepest church bell over the mounting snow. "'Beware! Beware!' And that is the end of, let's see, part two, chapter four, part two, <laughs> whatever. <laughs>